So today is Christmas Eve. Throw, throw back about two months, okay, around the end of October, in the Omis house, it's my house, in the Omis house every year, a debate resurfaces. Right, yeah, that's, that's the thing. When, when do we start listening to Christmas music? Uh, when do we start watching our favorite Christmas movies? When do we start decorating for Christmas? This is the debate, and I've talked to some of you all. I've polled the audience it's, at times, and it's the same way for many in your house. Okay, this I, I'm not trying to stir up any bad emotions this morning, but it seems like sometimes the people that that want to wait until like after Thanksgiving or something, they get like called a Grinch or, you know, cold hearted or something like that. But then the people that, that want to start decorating, like before Halloween is even here are like, they're, they're called, well, they, you're not giving Thanksgiving its proper spotlight. So you need to stop this. So see, there's kind of two sides to the coin. Um, when we start preparing for Christmas is a debate that we're not going to settle here this morning for sure. I don't know that we need to settle that necessarily, but I want to point out that somebody in scripture started preparing for Christmas hundreds of years before the Messiah was ever born. So take that as you will, as far as decorating time, but God's message to his people came, as Jason said, hundreds and hundreds of years before the Messiah ever was born in a manger. And so I think that was partly because God's people, Israel, they needed a while, they needed time for the message to sink in, right? Because there are still many today who are still waiting for the Messiah, but he's come, he's here. When we think about Christmas, we need the same kind of understanding, though. Now, we don't have 400 years to prepare, but we have time, and God's given that to us, and he's given it to us today. We need that kind of time to really understand what Christmas is about. When we think of the Christmas season, um, what are the things that we get excited for? Uh, Raise your hand if you're excited for time off of school. I see some teachers' hands up. Yes, that makes sense as well as you kids. I mean, some of us adults are getting time off of work. That's fantastic. You're looking forward to that. Many of us look forward to uh, giving and receiving presents, certainly. We look forward to spending time with family. And we look forward to food, right? Christmas dishes and things like that. We like making memories with our families. These are all things that are good and that we like to do every year. We get excited about these things. And with the advancement of of social media and being able to share all of this stuff, there's more pressure than ever to capture these Christmas perfect memories and share them on the, the World Wide Web for everyone to see. Because if you didn't take a picture of it and post it on Facebook, did it even happen? It, it, it did, by the way. You don't have to post it to Facebook. It really does happen. But in reality, some of the things that make life hard, just in general, can feel 
maybe even a little bit worse at Christmas time because you're thinking through maybe uh, it's a loss of a loved one. You're thinking through all the memories that you had that you're not able to make this year with them. Maybe it's a could be a strained relationship, either in your marriage or in your family and during the Christmas season when you kind of recognize like this should be a time for family. It, it hurts all the more because you know that that's strained. It could be financial difficulties. It could just be uncertainties about what's coming in the new year. When we're supposed to be happy about Christmas, sometimes the hard things are even more pronounced. And that's where God's Christmas preparation and prophecy of the Messiah in Isaiah 9 really comes to, to weary and hurting people. So, Isaiah chapter 9. Turn there if you're not there already. I'm going to read through just the first five verses, and then uh, my girls are going to come up and help with verses 6 and 7. So let's read Isaiah chapter 9, verses 1 through 5. But there will be no gloom for her who is in anguish. In the former time he brought into contempt the land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali. But in the latter time he has made glorious the way of the sea, the land beyond the Jordan, Galilee of the nations. The people who walked in darkness have seen a great light. Those who dwelt in a land of deep darkness, on them the light has shined. You have multiplied the nation. You have increased its joy. They rejoice before you as with joy at the harvest, as they are glad when they divide the spoil. For the yoke of his burden and the rod for his shoulder, the rod of his oppressor, you have broken as on the day of Midian. For every boot of the trampling warrior in battle tumult And every garment rolled in blood will be burned as fuel for the fire. And so Lux and Isla, would you all come up here? A child is born to us, a son is given. And the government shall be upon his shoulder. For to us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulder. And his name shall be called Thank you, girls. That was verse 6. For to us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulder, and his name shall be called. And these are those nicknames, kids. His name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, 
everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Verse 7, of the increase of his government and of his peace, there will be no end. On the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it and to uphold it with justice and with righteousness from this time forth and forevermore, the zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. Would you pray with me this morning? Lord, we thank you for these names of of Jesus because they give us hope in 2023 going into 24. They remind us that the Son of God, mighty God, He has come. He is here with us. Emmanuel means here with us. And so we thank you that you have burst into the darkness of this world with your light and that you shine still today all the brighter. In your name, Jesus, we pray. Amen. Hey, just as a side note here this morning, we're so thankful that you are here. If you're here with your family and you've got little ones and they're making a little bit of noise, do not worry a thing about it. We are happy that you are here, all of you, worshiping together So if you need to get up and walk around, feel free to do that. If you need to take your child and go uh, get a drink, please do that. We're happy to have families and we're happy to have the little noises here because it means that you're here and we're glad for that. Chapter 9, Isaiah. Look back at verses 1 and 2. Notice some of the words, the vivid words that are used here to describe what's going on currently in the land at the time. Gloom anguish, darkness. These are, these are big words. These are uh, f- fill, words filled with emotion. And I think this is an accurate depiction of what's going on in that time and in that region specifically. Think about it. They were ruled, being ruled by an Assyrian uh, emperor. They were waiting for hundreds and hundreds of years for a promise that doesn't seem like it's ever going to be fulfilled. But Christmas hope lies in these verses too. Look at what it says. He has made glorious Galilee of the nations. On them, it says, the light has shone. And verse 3 goes on. You have multiplied the nation. You have increased its joy. They rejoice before you as with joy at the harvest. And they are glad when they divide, as they are glad when they divide the spoils. As see, as the new day of hope dawned, the first rays of light shone in Galilee, there in the city. Now, literature, especially biblical literature, is just ripe with contrast. And I try to point this out as we're going through biblical texts because I think it's important. And these verses really show us contrast. So you can see it. We've got darkness and we've got light. Hard to have a more uh, definite contrast than that. Darkness and you've got light. You've got sadness. You've got joy. And in verse 5, you have the contrast. You have oppression, but you have deliverance here. Look at those verses. For the yoke of his burden and the staff for his shoulder, the rod of his oppressor, you have broken as on the day of Midian. For every boot of the tramping warrior in battle tumult and every garment rolled in blood will be burned as fuel for the fire. So what's the day of Midian that he's talking about here? Because that's an important 
kind of uh, watershed day for the Israelites. What is he talking about? Well, you guys remember Judges? You guys remember Gideon in the book of Judges? With just a few, relatively few, unarmed men, they go into battle with torches hidden in clay pots and trumpets against army of tens of thousands. They go in with just a few hundred guys, unarmed. And what happens? God shows up, angel of the Lord shows up, and they have an improbable victory over the Midianite army. So the yoke or the staff or the rod, as Isaiah mentions it here, of oppression over God's people will be no more. We, you know what we call that? We call that Christmas. The boot of the trampling warrior, he says, every garment rolled in blood. These, these images look forward to the day when the weapons of warfare, the things of war, they're only going to be good for stoking a fire because the Prince of Peace will have arrived, will have come. So Isaiah foretells the victory of this child, and he says it's going to be similarly unusual and unlikely, just as in the day of Midian, when Gideon takes and wins the the victory over them. Unlikely, yeah, but it will come, and with it, final end of all conflict. See, we need this victory. We need this kind of peace, not just because of the war-torn character of the world, but because of the deeper conflict, because of the deeper oppression that we're all under as descendants of Adam. We all need this deliverance. Jesus says in John chapter 8, verse 34, he gives us a clue as to our true condition. He says, everyone who practices sin is a slave to sin. We need to be freed from that. In truth... All the other conflicts, maybe some of those that your mind jumped to earlier when I was talking about Christmas season being hard sometimes, all those other conflicts, all those other things really originate from that conflict between us and God, that oppression that we have because of sin in our hearts and lives. But God says that it's going to end with Christmas. And how is he going to do this? Well, you know the story, through a baby in a manger, But then keep thinking through, as Mike mentioned in his prayer earlier today, through the cross, through the empty tomb. If victory by means of torches and clay pots and trumpets is improbable, imagine the end of all conflict through the birth of a baby. But this is God's promise. This is what he said he's going to do. But again, verses 1 and 2, they paint a bleak picture here. They say that Israel is walking in darkness, that they're, in fact, familiar with contempt. They've lost almost all hope. They have turned aside to other gods and other things. There's just a glimmer of faith left. But history teaches us that God doesn't wait for his people to get their act together before he comes to them. The book of Judges is a great illustration of this truth. Author Sam Albury puts it this way. He says that God didn't come to this world to congratulate the successful and high-five those who have their lives together. He came for those walking in darkness. They have seen the great light. So the message of Christmas came first to the oppressed, to to the broken, to the joyless, to the weary. 
And I wonder, sometimes we feel like that this time of year. But great light and hope come with it, come with him. Look at verse 6 of Isaiah 9. This kind of lays out the foundation for the previous prophecies of who this Christ would be by describing his, his name, some of those nicknames uh, of the great light, the one that Scripture now gives us this uh, fourfold name to. For to you a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulder. And here's his nicknames. The name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Now the fact that this child is going to be born indicates that he has both human parents and he's human himself and rightly speaks of it in his incarnation. That's what we talk about this time of year, the incarnation of Christ, God becoming man. And the Bible tells us that Jesus was born of a virgin named Mary. And I think it's important that Isaiah puts in here that he's going to be born because the reason he's born is so that he might become Emmanuel, which means God with us. The reason Jesus was born physically is so that he might come to deliver us. He's fully God. He's fully man. And he's come for us in that way. In order to be our redeemer, he had to first become like us. Uh, The Bible says our kinsmen. And the writer of Hebrews says the same thing. It says that he partook of the same, talking about flesh and blood. He partook of the same when he came. And by describing him as a child, Isaiah does it. And then describing him as a son, he's using the literary, but especially the Hebrew literary tool of repetition for emphasis. So mom and dad, we get this. We understand this concept, right? Because we oftentimes have to tell our kids multiple times to do something. We, we emphasize it. We repeat it for emphasis. And so that's what Isaiah is doing. He says, the government will be. Upon his shoulders. Now government here doesn't mean the kind of system that we've got here in America necessarily. Government here means his empire. His kingdom. He will undoubtedly rule that kingdom with authority. It will be on his shoulders. He's the one holding it up. Right? What else? Well this is where his name and nicknames come into place. Look at the first one. Wonderful counselor. We're going to go through these quickly. Wonderful means marvelous, extraordinary, something that causes amazement. Counselor means to give advice, to give counsel, to plan. Adrian Rogers says, Counselor means not only that Jesus is worthy of our praise because he's wonderful, but oh, how we ought to follow him because he is our counselor. Jesus is so full of wisdom. We think we're smart. But 6,000 years of recorded human history have brought us to the very brink of destruction. In fact, Jesus is the wisdom of God. Isaiah goes on in chapter 11, verses 1 and 2, to describe this kind of counselor even more. You can just kind of glance forward if you want. 11, 1 and 2, he says, There shall come forth a shoot from the stump of Jesse, and a branch from his roots shall bear fruit. And the Spirit of the Lord will rest upon him, The spirit of wisdom and understanding, the spirit of counsel and might, the spirit of knowledge and the fear of the Lord. This is talking about Jesus, our wonderful counselor. Some of us this Christmas are being blown like a ship on the sea in the waves. 
back and forth on a dark and stormy night. We don't know the will of God for us. We're searching. We're looking all over, maybe not in the right places, but we just don't know it. Don't you think now is a good time to let the wonderful counselor have control over the ship of your life? The one who knows it all? The one who has come and given us his spirit to guide and direct us? His name is Wonderful Counselor. So maybe starting today, maybe today is the day that you look to the Lord and you say, God, I'm not going to let another day pass where I don't sit under your counsel. Today would be a great day to say that. Wonderful counselor. The second nickname Isaiah gives to Jesus is Mighty God. Jesus isn't just someone we ought to admire and try to emulate. He is God. Imagine that contrast, if you will. We've got a manger and we've got a newborn baby. I was talking with our kids about this just the other day and the fact that uh, God created man and men and women, humankind, different than any other part of creation. And it shows sometimes, at the, even at the very beginning, You've, you think about uh, cat, cattle, you think about deer, many other um, just animals, they're born and they start walking sometimes the same day. They're ready to go. But you have a baby, a human child, and they need to be nurtured and they need to be cared for. They need to be protected and loved. It's very, very different. And God, of course, designed it that way. But this little infant, this little baby in a manger who needs to be cared for, almost every need has to be met from the outside for him. And yet Isaiah says, this infant is mighty God. Nehemiah, Isaiah himself, Jeremiah, and, and other of the prophets proclaim the Lord to be a great God. They talk about him as a mighty God, great in counsel, mighty in work. And that was the forecast for Jesus, and it finds its fulfillment in the manger. To quote Adrian Rogers one more time, he says that the little baby that was upon the straw is the mighty God of Genesis chapter 1. This little baby who held Mary's hand as a toddler and learned to walk is the one from whose fingertips the sun sprang and oceans dripped. He's the mighty God. This little boy playing with the shavings in Joseph's carpenter shop is the one who made every tree, every hill, every mountain. He is the mighty God. No wonder his counsel is so amazing. And like the wise men modeled for us, it is entirely appropriate to worship that kind of a God. Number three, everlasting Father, this is sometimes translated eternal father, and the the name indicates the timeless quality of Jesus. Now, I don't think Isaiah is saying here that Christ the Son is the same person as God the Father. I don't necessarily think this is a reference to the Godhead at all. The term father in the Bible is often used as um, just an, an indication of familial relationship, of loving guidance, protection, care, upbringing, responsibility. Uh, the Apostle Paul talks about Timothy as his son and, and he as his father. Literally not his father, and yet he functioned in that 
in that way. Jesus then is the father of all those whom the father gives him. God the father. He says that he talks about this in John chapter 6 if you want to look more into that. He says to those who believe on his name, he is their everlasting father because he reigns forever in glory. That's that's our Jesus. That's the boy in the manger. Jesus will never die and so his people will never be left fatherless. And that sure is reassuring to those of us who don't maybe have a great relationship with our dads, for those of us whose maybe our fathers have passed away, we know that we have the kind of protection and guidance and love that a father would have for us in Jesus. And it's told about him all the way hundreds of years before his birth. Because he is a father, he cares for his people. And because he owns eternity, he can give them eternal life. He's with them forever. Everlasting Father. Lastly, the fourth nickname is Prince of Peace. This one may be the most potent to us today. With everything going on in the world, Prince means leader, means companion, uh, or rather commander, captain, chief, ruler. You get that from the, the name Prince. And it makes us think of princes in history. Uh, the difference is, when we've got a prince or even a king or a president or any kind of leader in history, they're a leader for their little area, right? The United States is a big area, but in comparison to every area on the globe, it's small. And so Jesus isn't just the prince of one small area. As we've already said, his government, his rule will have no end. There's no boundaries there. Jesus rules over it all forever. He says he's the prince. He's a prince of peace. This is important. Paul, in Ephesians chapter 2, calls Jesus. He says he himself is our peace. This is huge for, for America, for the world, for us today. Because if Christ is our peace, then we're lacking in nothing. He doesn't, Paul doesn't use the word for peacemaker. He doesn't say that Jesus is our peacemaker. That's a different Greek word. He literally says that Jesus is peace itself. Men and women and nations through the ages have sought this kind of thing. We are searching for peace. And it's not a bad thing to pursue and strive for, but it can't be found anywhere outside of Jesus Christ. He is the prince of peace and peace itself. In the manger... Jesus was the way of peace between God and man. When he comes again, Jesus will be the way of peace in all of creation. It's a day that we long for. I heard it put like this. When Jesus was on the cross, it's almost like he made a will. Jesus gave his spirit to God the Father. Jesus gave his body to Joseph of Arimathea to, to bury Jesus gave his mother to John, the apostle, to care for. But on the cross, Jesus gave you his peace. John chapter 14, verse 27, Jesus says it this way. He says, peace I leave with you. My peace I give you. Not as the world gives do I give you. He says, let not your hearts be troubled. Neither let them be afraid. 
And this is a message that we need to hear at Christmas time. He says, let not your hearts be troubled. Neither let them be afraid. Guys, Jesus this Christmas is the Prince of Peace. He is that already. Uh, many years ago, 1945 or so, um, probably 46, a guy named Matthew Litt wrote a book. And he, it was titled Christmas 1945. It was a nonfiction book, and it tells the story of the first peacetime Christmas celebration after the end of World War II. And so he, he describes a bunch of the events that goes on, and the, the New York Daily News told its readers at that time to expect a fleet of warships to show up in the harbor in New York. And this is what it read in the New York Daily News. It said this, Christmas Day will find a mighty armada consisting of four battleships, six carriers, seven cruisers, and 24 destroyers. That's, that is a fleet, to say the least. Now, this came only a few months after the war had officially ended and so you can imagine when ships like that start rolling into the harbor, what that's doing to the people. They're starting to get a little uneasy. Is it really over? Are we going back to war? But instead of waging war, the battleships and the carriers and the destroyers and the cruisers, instead they hosted on deck nearly a thousand children, needy children, Apparently, some research had been done, and the child's measurements had all been taken. So when they go onto these vessels of war, they're dressed in army blue. They are given gifts and hats, and they are able to enjoy a Christmas on top of these ships, battleships, carriers, cruisers. And, and the reason why I bring that up is to point this out. For them, those vessels of war had been transformed to carriers of compassion. Icons of destruction with those big guns on the sides of the battleships were transformed into symbols of peace. The prophet Isaiah predicted a future day of Christ's reign on earth where there would be peace. Before Paul, the prophet Micah said, John, uh, Mike read from it this morning, this one will be our peace. The prophet Zechariah also said, this man will speak peace to the nations. Do you see the theme that's going on here? But being, bringing peace necessitated something. It meant that he would need to die. Colossians chapter 1, verse 19 through 20 says this, For in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell. And through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of the cross. That's how peace came. So there, on the hill, Golgotha, the cross, an icon of destruction was transformed into a symbol of peace. Jesus took our place to be able to give us that peace. In fact, I, I read it this way. Peace floods the soul when Christ rules the heart. Say that again. Peace floods the soul when Christ rules the heart. Look at Isaiah 9, verse 7. 
as we finish up this morning, of the increase of his government and of peace, there will be no end. On the throne of David and over his kingdom, to establish it, to uphold it with justice and with righteousness from this time forth and forevermore, the zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. His rule and his peace will be forever. Why? Because he upholds it in perfect justice and in perfect righteousness forever. How is all this possible? What ensures that what was prophesied about him will eventually take place in fulfillment? What guarantees that it's all still going to happen? I think it's at the end of that verse we see it. The guarantee that it's the zeal of the Lord of hosts who will make it happen. And that's why this morning the sermon is titled, The Zeal of the Lord Ensures or Guarantees Christmas. Guys, God... The Lord has a vested interest in what's going to happen in his world. In these prophecies and in this reign of righteousness, he's going to make it happen. He already is making it happen. Another way to say it, a simpler way, is just simply this. God always keeps his promises. So his zeal, his passion for it, he will do it. And he keeps his promises. He's brought it to fulfillment And will completely through his son. So the zeal of the Lord ensures that Christmas has come. And it guarantees that Christmas still matters. Still matters because it keeps us looking backward. And it keeps us looking forward at the same time. So think about that with me. We look backward at the manger. And we marvel at at his birth. God took on flesh and dwelt among us. We marvel at that. We look backward and we see it, but we look forward to the kingdom being fulfilled and peace reigning forevermore. It's easy to look around and to feel like this world is only growing in wickedness and in darkness. And in some sense, there's some truth to that. But I want to reassure you from Scripture this morning that Christmas reminds us that the rule of Jesus and his peace will also continue to increase. Did you see that in verse 7? Of the increase of his government and of his peace, there will be no end. Things may look dark, but his peace will increase. In fact, in 2024, the kingdom of Jesus Christ will not shrink. It will grow. It will increase. And we have a guarantee of that here from Isaiah, from the Lord. And the truth of the matter is, and this wraps into what we've been learning in the book of Acts, if you're on the right side of Jesus, you'll never be on the wrong side of history. Okay? So whether you're weary this Christmas season, whether you're discontent, maybe you're happy, maybe you're full of hope, good, This Christmas and New Year, continue to put your hope in Him. He will not let you down. He will never fail you. All that's left for us to do today is to marvel at Him. To hope in Him. To receive Him. Because at the very beginning, this says, To you a child is born. To you a son is given. Have you received that son? So, We pray, along with the carol that we sing, O holy child of Bethlehem, descend to us, we pray. Cast out our sin 
and enter in. Be born in us today. Let's pray. Lord, would you make this happen? That you would, as the song says, cast out our sin and enter in. Lord, that doesn't happen just uh, by osmosis of being friends with a Christian, having family members that are Christians. That doesn't happen even just by coming to church. Lord, that happens by a conscious decision of inviting Jesus to come and take away our sin and to rule over us. And he does it with perfect justice and with perfect love and peace. And so I pray, Lord, that you would be born in many today. And if there's any that don't know you that are listening, God, that you would, uh, just as you broke into the darkness, that you would break into the darkness of their soul and give them light and bring them life today and forevermore. Lord, uh, your passion, your zeal will make this happen because you have not left us fatherless. Thank you for the full four, fourfold name of Jesus, wonderful counselor, mighty God, everlasting father, prince of peace. We need him to rule and reign now and forevermore. And we pray that he would in our hearts. In his name we pray, amen.